All right. Well, we're going to continue on in our study of church history. And of course, we've been in this little mini-study, this mini-series on heresies that that really took hold in the early uh, centuries of the, the, the New Testament church. Um, these, are, these are teachings that uh, were not just sort of um, small little blips on the radar, but they actually had a pretty profound impact for a period of time, a fairly lengthy period of time in the early church's history. And really what is, I think, more significant, more um, interesting, and, and more cautionary for us is that these heresies all have strands that we see today in false teaching and things that we can be led astray into, ways that our minds can be dulled to the, to the clear teaching of Scripture, that, that these are not things that are new, nor are they things that have gone away. Uh, they're just things that had particular impact or influence in the early centuries, the early decades and centuries of the New Testament church. And so it's helpful, I think, for us both to connect with them to see that you know, these, are, these are things that are common to man. These are, these are sinful tendencies in the hearts and minds of men to not want to just receive and embrace and live by the clear, revealed truth of God and His calling on our lives. Um, but it also, I think, helps to inform us and helps to safeguard us and helps to kind of give us some flags that we can kind of have in our minds that when we start to see these things manifest themselves, we can say, oh, that's, that's kind of that strand. That's kind of like, that's like someone who is, who is trying to kind of claim that you have to know something a little more secret, a little more mysterious than what is clearly taught in Scripture. That's kind of a Gnostic kind of heresy. You can kind of just have those historical roots that, that serve as good reminders and flags as you come across these things uh, in, in our time and in our day. We, we wrapped up our, our time last week talking about the heresy uh, known as Montanism. And this is uh, 2nd century, uh, later part of the 2nd century. It's a movement that began in Asia Minor. We talked about that, uh, this, this man named Montanus. Um, he was, prior to his conversion, he was a pagan priest. And um, after his conversion, he uh, relatively early on uh, became enamored with himself, really, um, and began to espouse a, um, a doctrine that ascribed to him the power of the paraclete, that the Holy Spirit himself was speaking directly through him, and he began to propagate himself as a source of new and ongoing revelation directly from the Holy Spirit. He had a couple of prophetesses that, that accompanied him and that were a part of this movement. It was a movement that had a tremendous impact um, it, before the church was able to kind of put a firm check on it, it had spread really all throughout the Greco-Roman world. Um, there was, there was uh, even Montanist groups that were surviving all the way into the 5th century. So this is something that started in the latter part of the 2nd century, and there were still remnants of it all the way into the 5th century. Um, in North Africa, there was, uh, there was um, some, some sects of it there, as well as in Phrygia in Asia Minor where it started. So this is, this is what I mean by these, these heretical movements. They, they weren't just little blips. They weren't little flashes in the pan. <clears throat> they were significantly impactful in the life of the, earth, of the early church. And you can imagine that in this early period of time, uh, subsequent to the time of the apostles, you, were ha- you had this, this widespread growth and expansion of the church. You had this influx into the church 
pagan people who were bringing all kinds of different backgrounds and religious and spiritual and mystical kinds of backgrounds. And the, and the, and the church spread so far and wide, you can only imagine, if you just think about uh, if you just think about a global view of Christianity and the spread of Christianity as an evangelistic effort, you know what does that what does that look like when it finds its way into a region where that is dominated by, say, some type of mystery religion or mystery cult or some type of pagan idol worship or something of that nature? There's going to be these these uh, this sort of this religious baggage that's going to be extant in that culture and, in, and among those people. You also had the fact that even though uh, the New Testament epistles that were being written and inspired by the Spirit, the circulation of them was, was fairly widespread, but the canon of Scripture had not been sort of brought together and recognized as this is the final you know, word, the final revelation of God. Um, in, the New, in the New Testament form, if you will. And so the canon had not been formulated. So there was enough, um, enough uh, difficulty in per- perpetuating and propagating the apostles' teaching that people could be sort of led astray. And so the, the, the effort to, to circulate uh, the, the New Testament epistles and, and, and be devoted, as Acts tells us, to the apostles' teaching, you could see that there was some uh, um, possibilities for that to be difficult in that period of time. Of course, dealing with the, the seasons of persecution and the, the, the Roman Empire coming down on the, on the church and all these different things had certainly had impact. It, but it rises to, in my mind, this, this transcendent eternal principle. And really, it's, a, it's, it's tied to the title of, the, of this study that we're doing, Upon This Rock. The fact of the matter is, is that it is Christ who builds his church, always has been and always will be. So in spite of, irregardless of, heretical movements, ups and downs, backs and forths, persecutions, it doesn't matter that Christ is building his church. And what constitutes the church is not some tightly bound, fully understood, and comprehensively published for all time and eternity document. Okay? That's not what constitutes the church. Christ builds the church. Christ is the builder of the church. What binds us together in our understanding of who we are in Christ is the truth revealed in Christ and through the Scriptures. But what we must realize is that even through those times where the Scriptures themselves, even as we know it now, were not as you know, bound like this, right, and in your hands, that Christ was building His church and it was pure and it was His that the work of the church is a sovereign work of God, that the work of salvation is a sovereign work of God and always has been and always will be. And so that's what protects and preserves the church in and through any form of, of disruption. I mean, the fact of the matter is, is that we could have, it's not impossible or implausible that we could go through some you know, generational epic, even from this point or looking forward, where access to the scriptures would not be so abundant. There are people, believers, you know, around the world that do not have the same access to the written scriptures, and yet God's word makes its way to them, and God's work accomplishes its purpose, and people are drawn into the kingdom of God and into the life of the church, regardless, because it's a sovereign work of God. So it's just another reminder that, <clears throat> that we are people who have been called sovereignly by God 
and that Christ is the one who is ultimately building his church. Nevertheless, as people of the word, we are called to protect this deposit of faith that's been given to us. We are called to defend it. We are called to uphold it. And so understanding some of these heretical movements will hopefully aid us uh, in that process. This Montanism movement, of course, came at a time when the church was um, sort of complacent. It had, you know, sort of some of the the, uh, first century um, enthusiasm, if you will, and excitement had, had waned a bit. And so the church, church had kind of was ripe for something exciting, right? So that's, that to me is another caution that we talked about last week in that the, the, there's a danger in us being reactionary to almost anything. And that's really a practical principle, I think, in, in life in general, but particularly when it comes to doctrinal matters, theological matters, um, matters of, of spiritual life and belief and practice, that we, when we are confronted with something that seems errant, for us to react to it in, a, in, a, in an aggressive kind of way. So if the church becomes complacent and we begin to long for something more exciting, we could be led into something that is fulfilling that potentially sinful desire for feeling something as opposed to something rooted and grounded in biblical truth. So there's a danger there, and that's kind of a little bit of what probably happened at this particular time, given the context that it, that it emerged in, this Montanist movement. But it raised the question, and we kind of opened this up a little bit last week. You know, it raises this question. This is a, this is a movement that, that is alive and well in droves today. I mean, in fact, uh, it is dominant, particularly in other parts of the world. Absolutely dominant. Just sit down and have a conversation with Mark Nandino and find out what's going on in Africa, for example. It is, it is a dominant, dominant movement, this, this prophetic utterance, ongoing revelation kind of doctrine is wide, wide, widespread throughout the world. And it raises the question, is, that, is there anything valid to any of that or not? Or in other words, is God still giving new revelation through particularly the gift of prophecy, but also validating this revelation through sign gifts and miraculous gifts? Is that something that is normative for the life of the church and the ministry of the church and the priorities of the church today? And we talked about this, how, it, how this particular question sort of finds its camps, if you will, of argument or debate or disagreement in the camp known as continuationism and the camp known as cessationism. These are terms that I think are uh, a little bit challenging because they're isms, right? <laughs> Anytime you talk about an ism, that's often pop- possibly problematic. It's, I mean, you got atheism, you got you know, pragmatism, you've got a lot of isms that, you know, humanism, you've got isms that get, you know, they, they attach themselves to things that are not necessarily biblical. Um, and so these terms are, I, I think, can be pejorative and they can certainly be used in that way. But nevertheless, that's kind of the, 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 con, the common identifiers of these two camps, the, the cessationist camp and the continuationist camp. But just to give you a sense of of Faith Community Church's doctrinal position on this question, I'm going to read straight from uh, the doctrinal statement. Now today, I'm going to talk a little bit about um, cessationist doctrine versus continuationist doctrine. This is not a thorough treatment, 
And we're going to be very limited and pretty much narrow our focus down to this issue of prophecy because this is the historical, you know, um, at the historical forefront of what we're looking at in this Montanist movement. So we're not going to talk about, I'm not going to do a big treatise on, you know, 1 Corinthians 12, 13, and 14 and talk about speaking in tongues and all that sort of stuff at length. That's not really my purpose today. And we'll probably get more into that when we get to the period of church history where you have the emergence of the charismatic movement and that kind of thing. That'll probably be more of an appropriate time to go a little bit deeper and further with that. But just listen to our doctrinal statement as it's written so you can get a sense of the churches, this, this particular churches, faith community churches, uh, sort of official doctrinal position on this matter. It is God who, by His Spirit, gives the church spiritual gifts to accomplish His purpose in the world. First, He gives men chosen for the purpose of equipping the saints for the work of the ministry, and He also gives unique and special spiritual abilities to each member of the body of Christ. There were two kinds of gifts given the early church. Miraculous gifts of divine revelation and healing, given temporarily in the apostolic era for the purpose of confirming the authenticity of the apostles' message. And ministering gifts given to equip believers for edifying one another. With the New Testament revelation now complete, Scripture becomes the sole test of, of authenticity, excuse me, of the authenticity of a man's message. And confirming gifts of miraculous nature are no longer necessary to validate a man or his message. Miraculous gifts can even be counterfeited by Satan to deceive even believers. The only gifts in operation today are those non-revelatory equipping gifts given for edification. No one possesses the gift of healing today, but God does hear and answer the prayers of the saints and will answer in accordance with His own perfect will for the sick, suffering, and afflicted. I would encourage you to go and read this. This doctrinal statement has lots of footnotes and references to the passages that are that are um, it's referencing in support of this position. So I, I'm not going to obviously have time to go into all the footnoted passages that you can reference that really bring together this particular statement on this matter. But that's the church's position. So the church would be in the cessationist camp, if you will, as a doctrinal position, the cessationist camp not the continuationist camp. So let's just kind of flesh this out. Simple terms. If you believe all the spiritual gifts described in the New Testament have continued unabated, unchanged, and unaltered since the initial outpouring of tongues at Pentecost, you are a continuationist. Okay? If, however, you believe any of the miraculous spiritual gifts were operative in the apostolic era only, and that some or all of those gifts gradually ceased before the end of the first century, you are a cessationist. It's kind of putting it in more straightforward terms. But notice that there is some distinction there that has its roots in an understanding of the history of the church. Right? This is a question not just of what does this verse say, what does that verse say, it's not just an exegetical question about how to interpret or understand particular passages of Scripture. It's not just a high-minded theological category. It's actually tied to an understanding of actual history, both history as it is revealed in Scripture, in Acts and in the epistles, and the timing of the writing of those epistles and what you can kind of infer from that in terms of the content and focus of those epistles, but also in terms of what took place and what was recorded and what was understood and what was normative subsequent to the time of the apostles for long periods of time. So this really is a question 
not just of what does the Bible say or not say about this or that. It is a question of historical understanding. It's a, it's a, it's a question of recognizing or acknowledging something from history. Now, some of that history, obviously, is contained in the authoritative, inspired scriptures, too. So I'm not talking about just um, something outside the context of scripture itself. It's talking about the nature of of the question being a historical question uh, by nature, in addition to an exegetical or theological question. Now, let me make one clarifying statement. This is sort of maybe the uh, preemptive defense against some of the pejorative and and not-so-kind accusations that can come the way of those who would be in in the faith community church cessationist camp, if you will. Um, Cessationists do not believe that God no longer performs miracles. They do not believe that the canon of Scripture that we have now is a replacement for the work of the Spirit, both in the life of the church collective, also in the life of the individual believer. In other words, we are not like worshiping the, the, the Holy Scriptures is the third person of the Trinity. That's not the cessationist position. Although, that might not necessarily be a, an explicit accusation. It might be a kind of a tongue-in-cheek accusation that you would hear. But it's, all, it's implied or inferred quite often. It's, it's the classic example of a straw man argument where you just kind of go to an extreme and you say, well, since you don't believe this, then obviously you must believe that kind of thing. Right? Yeah, yeah, no doubt about it. And you'll you'll have an accusation that could come to those who would be in the cessationist camp as um, uh, really being um, committed to sort of dead orthodoxy and theology as opposed to the life of the Spirit in the body of Christ. So I will just make the case as well that... It is the Word of God that is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. It cuts and divides. It is incisive and it cuts straight to the heart. And it gives us discernment to be able to accurately identify who we are before God and deal effectively with our sin and move forward in true and genuine sanctification. Now, I'm just here to say that if that is what the Word of God does in part, It's also useful for teaching and instruction and reproving so that the man of God may be mature and complete and that may be able to minister effectively in the life of the body of Christ, right? So if all these things are true about the Word of God, then it is necessarily, in my mind, a fact that the individual believer, by virtue of their commitment to the Word of God, their conviction about submission to it, their diligence in developing the discipline of daily reading and meditation and churning through the truth of Scripture and having it lambast your flesh day in and day out so that you can work out your salvation with fear and trembling, that is going to be a spiritually alive person. Fully spiritually alive. Discerning, useful, bold and courageous in the face of all kinds of threats and things that might come against them. That's not someone who is just committed to dead orthodoxy or some high-minded, theological, living-in-the-clouds kind of Christianity. So let's just be real clear about this. Anytime you and I find ourselves spiritually anemic, and yet feeling very proud about the knowledge that we have acquired theologically, 
That's just sin. That has nothing to do with cessationism or continuationism. That's sin. And we should be confronted by those around us who love us in the body of Christ. We should be confronted by the spirit and the truth of God's word. And we should repent. But it has nothing to do with cessationism or continuationism. So I just want to draw that very clear distinction between, between that and this discussion that we're having about these two perspectives. So, cessationists do not believe that the Spirit is absent in the church now, now that we have the Word of God. But, as I said, cessationism is, a, is, is very much tied to an understanding, both exegetical understanding as well as a, sort of an a interpretive understanding of New Testament history and early church history and history subsequent to what would be considered the early church era. But in principle, let's talk about the first 30 years. Let's talk about an understanding of this particular matter that is derived by those that would adhere to a cessationist perspective from Acts, for example. In Acts 2.42-43, this familiar passage, what was the New Testament church like? It says, And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, and the fellowship, and to the breaking of bread, and to prayers. And awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. What you find as you survey Acts, this is just the first example, is Luke seeming to make this emphasis on the fact that these signs and wonders were necessarily and directly tied to the work and ministry and confirming ministry of the apostles validating, supporting the authority of their teaching, that they are messengers from God with this new covenant gospel that they're bringing in the fulfillment of what God promised in the Old Testament. Acts 5.12, Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles. Acts 14.3, So they, Paul and Barnabas, speaking of Paul and Barnabas, remained for a long time, speaking boldly for the Lord, who bore witness to the word of His grace, granting signs and wonders to be done by their hands. Acts 15.12, this is at the Jerusalem Council, you recall. And all the assembly fell silent, and they listened to Barnabas and Paul as they related what signs and wonders God had done through them among the Gentiles. So, in Acts, being the history of the, the church in the first 30 years, subsequent to Pentecost and the coming of the Holy Spirit, there is this stream of conveyance of the operation of these sign gifts to be directly associated with the apostles in their operation and in their purpose. They were affirming and validating and giving a sense of authority to the apostles in their teaching and their ministry. That they were indeed specially sent, specially anointed by God for this purpose of bringing the gospel of the kingdom of God and salvation through Christ alone. Even beyond that, though, you have the Apostle Paul in these, you know, the, the, the controversial you know, epistle uh, to the Corinthians in which he's dealing with most extensively the charismata, the, the, the sort of the sign gifts, if you will. Uh, in his second letter to the Corinthians, 
He writes this in 2 Corinthians 12, 12. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. The signs of a true apostle is how he articulates them. Hebrews 2, 1 through 4. Therefore, we must pay closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. In other words, the purpose was for God who bore witness with signs and wonders and miracles. It was an attestation purpose. That's what we're talking about, it being a historical matter. Well, you might ask, or the continuationist, or just the the curious observer might ask, what what do you say about those who performed these miraculous signs, who were not apostles. How do you, how do you respond to that? Well, um, if you take, for example, Acts 8, and you have Philip, who was uh, a deacon of the church. He was um, one of the original seven. He was um, assigned this task of serving in, in the church and really taking care, really uh, solving a, a very serious problem in that there was... Um, widows who were being neglected in the church because they were Hellenistic, uh, of a Hellenistic uh, origin. They were kind of Greek Jewish people. They were, they were not true Jews, if you will, pure, pure, pure blood Jews, if you will. And so they were being neglected in the church. And so these, these deacons were uh, chosen, and, and Philip was one of them. And you recall, after the Apostle Paul's persecution... Actually, it was Saul at the time. His persecution that he was unfurling on the New Testament church, um, the church was scattered from Jerusalem, and Philip goes into Samaria and begins to minister in Samaria. So you pick up Philip in Samaria, not as an apostle, but as a, just a, a deacon, a servant in the church. And it says, Now those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them Christ. And the crowds with one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. So again, the purpose there was, was com- confirming the authority of his message. So there's, at least there's that consistency, even if it's inconsistent, quote-unquote, that he's not a true apostle. So the purpose, again, is consistent with the purpose that was originally stated by the cessationist position, that it was an attestation uh, occurrences that uh, gave uh, credence and, and authority to the message being preached. But it said, When they heard him and saw the signs that he did, for unclean spirits crying out with a loud voice came out, and many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or, uh, or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. That's what was going on with Philip. You have, later on in that chapter, you have Simon Magus, Simon the Magician, who basically made his living by doing magic and, and, and thrilling and, and fooling and, and, and fascinating the people with his, his uh, sorcery and magic. And he was impacted by this ministry of Philip. He was actually jazzed by what he was seeing in these sign gifts being performed. And of course, Peter comes 
uh, into town and ministers there, the Holy Spirit comes on, this is, this is the, the period of time, and we talked about this, where the Holy Spirit fell upon the Samaritan people in a unique way, similar to the way the Holy Spirit came at Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, and fell in a unique way where manifestations took place of the Spirit, confirming this unique event on the Jewish people at Pentecost. This was the same kind of event with the Samaritans. You have similar events. For example, we talked about this when Peter goes to Cornelius, and you have the Spirit coming in that unique way and tongues being spoken immediately, similar to Pentecost and similar to Samaria. And then you have the disciples of John, same kind of deal later on in Acts. So this is that, that's, that period of time where the Holy Spirit is coming in, this is, this is a this is part of redemptive history being you know unfolding before them in in miraculous and amazing ways and so they the spirit came upon them and of course Simon Magus was really jazzed about that and he approaches Peter and he says when it says when, in in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 8 when Simon saw that the spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles hands he offered them money saying give me this power so that anyone on whom I lay hands may receive the holy spirit so, again, this is him recognizing that there is special authority and due to these apostles. There's a book that was written by Walter Tantry entitled Signs of the Apostles. And in this book, he carefully goes through and shows clearly and demonstrates clearly how every recorded instance of the reception of miraculous power in the New Testament occurred through the ministry of an apostle in some way. It was not separate from the apostle. I mean, those original seven, the apostles laid hands on them and gave them this special ministry of being a deacon. So in every case, you have this direct association or direct affirmation of the ministry of the apostles for those who were not necessarily apostles who were given this special gift as an attestation of the authority of their message. And of course, think about this in light of the unfolding purpose and plan of God. It starts in Acts chapter 1 with Jesus on the mountainside before his ascension saying, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the world. And of course, Acts chronicles for us how this happened, but he makes a point of emphasis to highlight here is where the gospel in sort of an officially ratified way made it into Samaria, as an example. And the same kind of thing happens throughout the book of Acts at these seminal moments where the, the, the kingdom of God comes, the Spirit of God comes in a unique way through the hands of the apostles, or in this case, through a, hand, through a representative of the apostles, to demonstrate the, the authenticity and authority from God of this message of the gospel. Philip Johnson says this, and I think this is a good point. Philip Johnson's always really uh, insightful. He's probably one of the best apologists and polemicists, Christian polemicists you could find. He goes right at things. But he says this. He says, think about this. If every Christian had the power to appropriate miracle gifts for himself, whether he did it by faith or by any other means, signs and wonders would not be helpful at all as the signs of an apostle. You can see the evidence in Scripture itself that once the foundational purpose of these sign gifts was fulfilled, 
The signs and wonders never became a major aspect of daily church life and worship. The priority then, as now, was the preaching of the gospel, not signs and wonders. You have the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 1. This letter that when he gets to this, I mean, he's obviously 1 Corinthians Corinthians is not a big love letter to the Corinthians for all that they're doing well and right. It is a letter that is full of rebuke and correction. And this whole section in chapters uh, 12, 13, and 14 is part of this rebuke. Chapter 13, the love chapter, which was written with Paul having in mind, this is going to be used a lot in weddings, that's what he was thinking at the time, (laughs) is part of this comprehensive rebuke. That you, you're, you're totally missing this. The greatest of these is love. What you're doing is not operating in the love of Christ. It's part of a rebuke. It's a beautiful poetic chapter, but did you know that? You might think of it differently. Next time you go to a, med, a wedding and you hear that chapter read, and you see the couple up there looking lovingly into one of those eyes, you can just think of the Apostle Paul rebuking the Corinthians. It'll be a really warm moment for you. <clears throat> you just destroyed that for a lot of people. Yes. <laughs> But, but he says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seeks wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but those who are being called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. In other words, the priority and the focus was not like the Corinthians get all worked up over the sign stuff but focus on the truth, like we did focus on the truth. This was what we were about. These things were attesting to the power and the work and the purpose and the plan of God and the authority of God that He had invested in us for this ministry. But that is not what our focus was on. We were not... The Jews sought signs from Jesus. Give us a sign. Show us once again. Philip Johnson says again, of all the teaching in the New Testament epistles on the church life, on church life and ministry priorities and leadership, only 1 Corinthians, the earliest of the Pauline epistles, mentions the sign gifts. And it is a rebuke for their abuse of an undue fascination with miraculous sign gifts. So again, thinking about the history of the early church and Acts being a legit, a, a, um, a explicit historical record, I mean, it's intended to be a history document, and then the epistles that contain history, and there are historical um, benchmarks to them, or, or mileposts to them in terms of when they were written and what the context of their writing was. The fact that there is such a, an extreme focus on the ministry priorities of the local church in service and preaching and defending the faith and the purity of the church and the practice of discipleship. In the ministry of church, in the, in the purpose of church discipline, and dealing with issues of relational conflict that would serve as a detrimental testimony to the world around you, because after all, Jesus said, they'll know you by your love. It's all that kind of priority and emphasis in the instruction in the epistles, except for 1 Corinthians, which of course is oftentimes a proof text for a lot of the continuationist uh, doctrine. Even James. James does not instruct believers who are sick to go find someone with the gift of healing. He instructs them to call the elders in and to elicit their prayers for their healing. In fact, 
when you think about this, and this is the argument that, Philip John, that Phil Johnson makes very um, powerfully, when you think about the, the cessationist versus the continuationist camp, he says that there really aren't any credible absolute continuationists out there. There aren't. There's no pure continuationist, really, with legitimate bona fides and credibility. Now, he says it in his own Phil Johnson kind of way. He says, absolute non-cessationists, or continuationists, exist only at the bizarre fringe of the charismatic movement. They are the sort of people who like to declare one another apostles, quote-unquote, claim and inevitably abuse all the apostolic prerogatives, sometimes invent fanciful stories about people raised from the dead, and twist and corrupt virtually every category of doctrine related to the gospel, the atonement, or Christian discipleship and self-denial. But evangelical charismatics, especially of the Reformed variety, do not really believe there are apostles today who have the same authority as the apostles in the early church. Some may use the term apostle, but they invariably insist that the apostleship they recognize today is a lesser kind of apostleship than the office and gift that belonged to the apostles in the first century. Now think through the implications of that position. By arguing for a lesser kind of apostleship, they are actually conceding that the authentic, original New Testament gift of apostleship has ceased. They have, in effect, embraced a kind of cessationism themselves. Again, those that are claiming the kind of continuationist belief that the gifts, the miraculous sign gifts that were in operation in the time of the apostles are continuing today unabated, and they are part and parcel of the life and work and ministry of the church. They are intended to be pursued and intended to be utilized and intended to be exercised for the edification of the church and for the purposes of the church and for the ministry of the church. Those folks tend to exist on fringes doctrinally. In other words, their arguments for doctrinal soundness of their position is, is pretty weak, and their, their um, practices push the limits of both credibility as well as ethics, oftentimes. But those that are credible witnesses or credible uh, adherents to a continuationist position They're not pure continuationists, is the argument here, is the position here. Because they would argue that we're not talking about the same kind of manifestation of these gifts. We're not talking about the same level or the same extent. And let me kind of fill that out a little bit for us. Jack Deere, who was a former Dallas Seminary professor who became an advocate for charismatic doctrine, he admits in his book, entitled Surprised by the Power of the Holy Spirit, that he has not seen anyone today performing miracles or possessing gifts of the same quality as the signs and wonders of the apostolic era. In fact, Deere argues vehemently throughout his book that modern charismatics do not even claim to have apostolic quality gifts and miracle working abilities. One of Deere's main lines of defense against critics of the charismatic movement is his insistence that modern charismatic gifts are actually lesser gifts than those available in the apostolic era, and therefore he suggests they should not be held to apostolic standards. This is a former seminary professor who has written books on the subject of 
uh, charismatic gifts, and he would be one advocating for a lesser kind of gift, a lesser kind of manifestation. Probably the big, the big sort of heavyweight proponent, though, is Wayne Grudem. How many of you have heard of Wayne Grudem? So just let me give you a little bio on Wayne Grudem. Wayne Grudem, prominent evangelical theologian, seminary professor, author. He is the co-founder of the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood. So he's a complementarian as it relates to uh, male-female relationships and husband and wife relationships. He served as the general editor for the ESV Study Bible. He is the author of multiple books, including Systematic Theology and Introduction to Biblical Doctrine, which is a solid systematic theology. I think that even Expositor Seminary and others use it as a text. It advocates a Reformed or Calvinistic soteriology. It, it, it advocates the verbal, plenary inspiration and inerrancy of the Bible. It, it advocates believers' baptism. It advocates a plural elder form of church government and the complementarian view of gender relationships. He's our guy, right? He's our guy. And he is a, he is a very highly respected and, and great scholar and, and you know, a humble servant of the Lord. But he holds to a non-cessationist, charismatic belief. He was at one time a supporter of the Vineyard Movement, and that's something we'll talk about uh, a little bit further on in our study. He was one of the main, and he's one of the main apologists and spokesmen for reuniting charismatic, reformed, and evangelical churches. So he is, he is, his sort of work now is how can we, how can we mediate our position here? Because this is a reformed guy. This is a I mean, he is a theologian of theologians, and yet he is a a continuationist from the standpoint of the sign gifts in the church. He argues, though, just in a similar fashion to uh, Deere, Jack Deere, he argues that there is a distinction between authoritative New Testament apostolic prophecy and non-authoritative congregational prophecy. So he diminishes the authority and nature of prophecy as a particular point of focus. This is where we're going to narrow our focus to this issue of prophecy in light of this Montanus heresy. Uh, in his book, The Gift of Prophecy in the New Testament and Today, Grudem attempts to mediate this position between the charismatic continuationists and cessationists. So he, he's, he's trying to achieve you know, unity around some doctrinal understanding and some agreement. He says this in his book. He says, I am suggesting an understanding of the gift of prophecy which would require a bit of modification in the views of each of these three groups. Talking about the um, Pentecostal, the third wave charismatics, and the the cessationists. Those are the three groups he's referring to. And we'll talk about that another time. He says, I'm asking that the charismatics go on using the gift of prophecy, but that they stop calling it a, quote, word from the Lord, simply because that label makes it sound exactly like the Bible in authority and leads to much misunderstanding. Now, I would say that that's probably too mild of a reason to not use that phrase, a word from the Lord. Um, but that's, that's what he writes. He says, on the other side, I'm asking those in the cessationist camp to give serious thought to the possibility that prophecy in ordinary New Testament churches was not equal to Scripture and authority, but was simply a very human and sometimes partially mistaken 
report of something the Holy Spirit brought to someone's mind. And I'm asking that they think again about those arguments for the cessation of certain gifts. I should make it very clear at the beginning that I'm not saying that the charismatic and cessationist views are mostly wrong. Rather, I think they are both mostly right in the things they count essential. And I think that an adjustment in how they understand the nature of prophecy, especially its authority, has the potential for bringing about a resolution of this issue which would safeguard items that both sides see as crucial. So that gives you a sense of where Grudem is coming from. He's wanting to kind of figure out, is there a, can, can we come to the middle and shake hands, is, is what he's after here. Which is, is a fine, is a fine uh, intention for him to use his gifts, his intellect, his experience. I mean, I, I, like I said, he's a, he's a, by my you know, distant observation and some of the things I read, he's a very knowledgeable, godly, humble man. So I know that this is probably coming from a, a pure heart motive and a desire to to help. So please don't take what I'm saying as, you know, a personal critique of him. Um, He offers his own novel definition of Christian prophecy that he admits is, quote, somewhat, a somewhat new definition of the nature of Christian prophecy. So he acknowledges this is, this is new, a new way to understand this. He hopes that, quote, both pro-charismatic and anti-charismatics may be able to find a middle ground with a considerable potential for reconciling their current differences, end quote. So that's his stated objective. His concept, though, differs markedly from traditional Orthodox understanding of the gift throughout church history. And this is where the divide comes. And this is what the prob- where the problem lies in this understanding of prophecy. If you change the definition of prophecy from something that is less authoritative and more human, then... I mean, you're changing the whole meaning of words. I mean, it just doesn't mean what it means. It's like you're, you're basically, it's a moving target in terms of definition and understanding. If you, can, if you can be in the middle of arguing a point, but then you start changing the definition of terms, you can never lose that argument. If you have the freedom and the autonomy to be able to change the meaning of words and terms that you're debating so that it conveniently suits your particular perspective, what are we arguing about anymore? It's, this is, it's, it's descended into a bit of absurdity. And so that's kind of the, the difficulty here with the position he's kind of taking or advocating. It's clear, though, that it differs from what was ortho, an orthodox understanding from church history of the nature of prophecy, both New Testament and Old Testament, that it was authoritative and that the tests for its authenticity and validity were the same. You couldn't be a prophet in the New Testament and get a pass for prophesying something that ended up being erroneous. That's, that doesn't, in other words, you can call it something else. You can call it like, you know, I had, I had what seemed like a strong impression from the Lord, but it turns out I was wrong. Okay. <laughs> but it's not prophecy. That's the point. You see what I'm saying? It's like you're veering off the, under, the orthodox understanding of the nature of that gift from the Holy Spirit. Call it something else and say and, and say that you're not just calling it something else, it actually is something else other than the gift of prophecy. We're not just talking semantics here. He's making a semantic argument. Let's call it something else. I'm advocating that the charismatics don't use the phrase a word from the Lord because, you know, this and this and this and this. No. Don't use that phrase because it's not a word from the Lord. It's something else. Call it whatever you want to call it other than a word from the Lord or prophecy or what have you. That's, that's the difficulty here. Now you have, um, 
you have um, <clears throat> Phil Johnson going on to say about this, this position. Well, let me read one more quote from Grudem. Um, he says, The spontaneous, powerful working of the Holy Spirit, bringing things to mind when the church is gathered for worship, giving edification, encouragement, and comfort, which speaks directly to the needs of the moment and causes people to realize that truly God is among you is what he means by prophecy. So in other words, I, I, mean, I don't know what that is, but it's, it's, why call it prophecy? I mean, it's just the gift of prophecy. That's not, that's not what it is. David Farnell um, wrote an article, a seminary journal article, uh, a number of years ago. And basically, he takes up this whole Montanist uh, period in church history and says, look, how did the early church respond to Montanism? That would give you an indication of the church's position on the matter of prophecy. Redefining it for our time is probably not the best way to understand an orthodox position of the church. And he makes the argument that because these, this was so close to the time of the apostles, um, that the, the opportunity for there to be some continuity of understanding of what was orthodox would have been much greater at that time. Farnell says, The Montanist crisis was the greatest struggle over the New Testament charisma, the gifts, especially prophecy that the post-apostolic church experienced up to that time. And his second point is that because it occurred so very early in period, immediately after the time of the apostles and close to the New Testament writings, the church's handling of the crisis would reflect how the post-apostolic church understood the nature of that prophetic gift. And they did not respond by saying, oh, well, this is probably some different kind of prophecy. This is a little bit of a lesser kind of prophecy. That's not how they responded at all. Listen to what Eusebius, an early church historian, wrote in the preface uh, to his book or his writing that was against Montanism. He says, The enemy of the church of God, who hates good and loves deeply all that is wicked, left untried no kind of plot against men and again strove to raise up strange heresies against the church. Of these, some like poisonous reptiles crawled over Asia and Phrygia, and boasted that Montanus was the paraclete, and that women of his sect, Priscilla and Maxima, Maximilla, were the prophetesses of Montanus. In other words, anathema, harsh, strong language against this kind of, I'm imbibing a word from the Lord. In, in this quote, he labels this movement a strange heresy. So it was never accepted in any way in mainstream, mainstream Christianity. There's another quote that Eusebius, Eusebius is quoting an anonymous uh, writer, and he says, Their opposition and their recent heretical schisms from the church, so again, talking about this was a divisive element in the church, had the following origin. And he goes on to talk about Montanus and his history and where he came from and all that. It says, he began to be ecstatic and to speak and to talk strangely, prophesying contrary to the custom which belongs to the tradition and succession of the church from the beginning. Of those who at that time heard these bastard utterances, some were vexed, thinking that he was possessed by a devil and by a spirit of error and was disturbing the populace. They rebuked him and forbade him to speak, remembering the distinction made by the Lord and his warning to keep watchful guard against the coming of false prophets. 
but others, as though elevated by a Holy Spirit and prophetic gift and not a little conceited, forgot the Lord's distinction and encouraged the mind-injuring and seducing and people-misleading spirit being cheated and deceived by it so that he could not be kept silent. By some art, or rather by such an evil scheme of artifice, the devil wrought destruction for the disobedient and receiving unworthy honors from them, stimulated and inflamed their understanding, which was already dead to true faith. I mean, it's just... It's just staunch criticism. Phil Johnson kind of concludes his argument by saying this, As for biblical arguments in Scripture itself, there is ample evidence that miracles were extraordinary rare events usually associated in some significant way with people who spoke inspired and infallible utterances. It is obvious from the biblical narrative that miracles were declining in frequency even before the apostolic era drew to a close. Scripture says the miracles were apostolic signs, and therefore, by definition, they pertain specifically and uniquely to the apostolic era. So the cessationist position over against the continuation position is basically a historical understanding of how God worked and moved and what the purpose of those sign gifts actually were. And they were profound in their purpose and their intent. That's not to say that God does not still perform miracles. That's not even to say that God does not miraculously heal people. I mean, that happens, right? I mean, you probably have stories in your own life and history where they went to the doctor and what was supposed to be there was no longer there, and the doctor can't explain it by any other means. So we're not talking about God's departure and his miraculous power from the lives and affairs of his people. I mean, that's not what we're talking about. We're talking about the normative operation of a special category of sign and revelatory gifts that were given for a specific purpose among a specific group of heralds that over time the need for them diminished and the focus became on the normative ministry gifts of preaching and teaching and service and generosity and hospitality and leadership and those kinds of things. That's the argument. Now, I'm not going to go into the argument, obviously, for the sake of time and for the sake of focus on all the counter-arguments from the continuationist camp. I mean, I just want to reinforce what our, our church endorses and, and believes in this regard at this particular time. We'll probably get into that a lot more when we get into the charismatic movement as a point of our his, study of history. But just know that this kind of continual revelation Unfortunately, and this is where I would say, uh, this is the challenge, and I mean, obviously, Wayne Grudem, you know, I wouldn't want to sit down with him and have, you know, have to debate him on anything. I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not advocating that. But I do see a real challenge in what he's trying to do. He's trying to call upon people to thread a needle, to walk a line that no one ever walks. When these kinds of things begin to be ascribed to something bigger and better, our flesh tends to take over, right? That's what happens in the life of the church. And so my, my ability to come and speak a word to you, it's going to be very difficult for me if you begin to receive that, for me to not be very, very affirmed by my newfound power over you, my ability to influence you. So this kind of stuff, threading this needle by saying, well, it's a different kind of prophecy and putting it in these categories and these terms, I just don't see it as being viable, practically reasonable. Anyway, I was pretty technical and pretty uh, um, read a lot of stuff. I appreciate you hanging in there, and we got to go. So I'm going to pray.